Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Former chair of the political science department at California State University, Chico, Michelle Shover, has published articles about California history for 40 years. In a previous book, she explored Chico's past, including roles of women, anti-Chinese violence, and the challenges blacks experienced when Chico was a rural farm town. Michelle Shover now has a new book about the world of Chico's early leaders, Gus and Sarah Chapman, their friends and rivals. The title of this new book is Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861-1899. My conversation with author Michelle Schober is taking place in her home, which is the former home of Gus and Sarah Chapman. Michelle Schober, thank you for hosting Nancy's Bookshelf in this historic mansion. You're welcome to come anytime. Well, uh, because of its historic significance, tell us about this place. It's a, originally, it's been many things for many purposes. It originally uh, started with foundations by a young judge who died at the age of 31, and he got no further than building the brick piers. His father had been a bricklayer, so he knew how to do that. Uh, He died of some disease. They were all kinds around. And the piers stood here for several years, and people could see them passing by and remembered them for decades. Then, Eventually, the estate sold that to the only physician in town, Dr. J.B. Smith. So he then built the first, the cabin, and I have a imagined picture of it in the book. Uh, now it's the living room and dining room on the first floor, and there were stairs going up in that cabin to a second low uh, ceilinged room, which I've always assumed was probably like a bunk house up there, because he lived there with a couple of, I think, hired hands. Um, And I know that, um, I know what he used to buy. He used to buy a lot of gallon jugs of liquor, (laughs) because I found those on the ledger in Bidville's store. He called it Sunflower Farm the ranch here, but he lost it to bankruptcy. Eventually, then, uh, Gus Chapman, who started out in Chico as the manager of Bidwell's store. uh, uh, Bidwell now, who we view as the founding father of Chico, and Gus Chapman went to work for John Bidwell. Uh, Gus Chapman went to work for John Bidwell, and I should add, John Bidwell's equal partner, a man named George Wood. Mm-hmm. And they were, Wood was an entrepreneur. That was really his calling. And so Chapman was his backup man. Uh, with Wood's help, Chapman became a lumberman, owned property up in the Sierra Nevadas. And uh, with his encouragement, then in that investment, Chapman bought this ranch in 1869. He then... Uh, because he didn't come to California until 1861. That's right, that's right. He wanted to buy this uh, property, this ranch, to turn it into a suburb. The reason that seemed like a good investment was that at the time, Chico existed as a village, and the occupants were frustrated because it was surrounded by ranch land all around on three sides. And Bidwell had said directly that he didn't want to open any more land for settlement so, because he had a business in a ranch, and he wanted he thought now he had a bigger market, so he wanted to keep it. So it seemed reasonable for him to do that. It also seemed reasonable for Chapman then to see this third, this other side of town, the, the Ford empty side, as a place to develop housing. My guest is Michelle Shover. She has a new book, Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 
1899. And people who move here, oh, there's a section of Chico called Chapman Town. Why is that uh, a separate area that's called a town? Chapman Town. Well, and to people at that time, it seemed like a town because it was out of town. One of the reasons he had trouble making sales initially was that people felt it was just too far to get to town from out here. So this was a frustration. But the, the cabin that was sitting on it was something, um, he, he wanted to have a big grand house, but of course he couldn't afford that. So he decided he could take this house, the ranch house, and improve it, make it lovely somehow. He didn't know how to do that himself, apparently, but he had ideas. And he was very fortunate because Henry Cleveland, who was the uh, architect for Bidwell's house, was in town a lot. At this time, Bidwell had moved the beginning of Chico across the creek for the village, Chico Village, to start. And Henry Cleveland then happened to be in town helping him clear away all the building stuff and decide where to plant trees and bushes. Well, now, um, so Henry Cleveland was available to be working on this project. Yeah, well, it was important, um, Chapman felt, as I understand from your book, that if you're going to be an important, influential person, you need a, a house along those lines. He comes, he's an educated man. He's has a training as a lawyer. He was educated. Uh, and uh, he comes here and he feels, well, my house should reflect my position in the community. That's right, and it needed to be a, a model house for the, the new area because when you developed a suburb in those days, you didn't build on it. The people bought the lots and then they built on it. So he wanted to set a kind of standard. Well, you know, I, there's so much I enjoyed about your book. Uh, just as I ride around Chico now, I'm back in history having read your book. But things like um, the state of dentistry then, how did it differ then from now, say? When you said that, I touched my jaw. <laughs> it's horrible. Um, they got you very drunk because they had no way to still the pain. And one of the major methods they used was just to pull out teeth that were at all problematic. And so it was excruciating to go to the dentist. And Charlie Stilson, who was a clerk whom Gus Chapman supervised, had all of his lowers pulled out. Um, it was horrific. And eventually the dentist committed suicide by jumping off a balcony. So the poor man had a miserable life himself. But it was the only solution people had. Lovely people had horrible teeth growing in all different ways. There are many parts of your book that I enjoyed because I don't get this in most history books. You did a tremendous amount of research. And I love the fact that you looked at newspapers of the time and got your information there. For example, um, suppose uh, a young woman needed an abortion because it was very dangerous to give birth in those days. What would a young woman do? What could she do? Well, um, they didn't say who in town could be helpful. But they had regular ads that were obliquely phrased about uh, relieving suppression. And people had to figure that out. But it was to help clear themselves. Uh, so people were very aware that there had to be something. And so they would travel to the city, at least, according to these ads. But I presume there were probably people women who kind of knew how to help one another. Well, just the general status of women at that time can be somewhat shocking <laughs> to those of us in the 21st century. And for example, many years ago, I met this older woman and her last name was White, and she referred to her husband as Mr. White. And you bring out in your book how, uh, for example, when Sarah Chapman comes to town, she was a married woman. How was she addressed? Mrs. Chapman, always, even by, even among themselves, they called one another Mrs. Chapman or Mrs. Camper 
or Mrs. Mason, uh, Mrs. Stansberry. Um, husbands called their wives by that when there were other people around. So using a first name was considered intimate. And then at different stages of life, a young, a young girl was, had just her name, and that was fine to use. Then she became Miss Sally or something of that nature until she married, and then she was Mrs. White or whatever. So you had to know the, the uh, protocols of the names. Yeah, well, and uh, of course, women did not have a vote then. That was a long time in coming. So what did women do? Well, one of the things that women did who, of course, there were different classes. That's clear. You can see that in the book. So women who were poor, they just did whatever they could. They sold books from door to door. One woman had a little business of laying canvas on porches to get through the winter so the wood wouldn't rot. Um, if you were, if you had sort of other sort of more, what should I say, refined talents, um, you taught other women painting um, or uh, musical uh, lessons. Uh, it was understood that women had chickens. The money for the chickens was for them personally. The husband could not claim the chicken money. So that was very important. And also in Chico, there was a huge surplus of bachelors because miners would come down to town for the winters in the boarding houses. So um, luckier miners would be able to rent a, a room in a house. So many women would rent a room in their house for extra income because the income that men had, um, even though they worked 12-hour days was very minimal. It was like a dollar a day, commonly. And men were so exhausted and just done in by these kinds of circumstances that they would commonly uh, stop at a saloon on the way home just to kind of recover themselves. And it was cheap. So men who drank Many of them became alcoholics and became less good as employees. And so the pressure on women was enormous, hence the interest in temperance. It was a true problem. There was a lot of violence in families. There was a lot that went on that was really difficult living. Um, people who had better circumstances, better relationships, had uh, ways of uh, women had uh, ways of developing themselves and expressing themselves. They weren't part of the political system, you know, the, no, no way to serve office of any kind. But the town needed a great deal. And so women, never able to charge, take any money for it, became essentially the town's social workers. They would get together and figure out what family was in dire need and they would try to find a way to house them. In one case, a woman allowed a family to occupy a shed at her house, just at least so for them to have a roof while a better solution could be found. They talked to the, um, the chief constable, called the marshal or the chief of police. Uh, they talked him into allowing them, if they had a jail free, to put six sick poor men in the jail so he wouldn't have to be on the street while they figured out you know, what to do. It was part of the problem with Oroville too because Oroville had, put a, had built a hospital for the county, but they had put it up in the direction of the mines. So it was absolutely useless to people in the valley. And there was no sense of responsibility that the county took here for anything. And Chico was at a disadvantage as well because it was not an incorporated town. And so um, it could only get what the supervisors wanted Chico to have or wanted to pay. They didn't want to pay much at all. They didn't like Chico growing to be a competitor 
to Oroville. My guest is retired professor Michelle Schober, and she has a new book, Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861 to 1899. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, retired professor Michelle Schover, who has a new book about Chico's Chapman's. Now, you're mentioning this uh, competition between Chico and Oroville. For example, when Chico needed water pipes, and if you can't get metal for your water pipes, they used wood. They had to use wood. They they had everything dug. They were ready to put in the pipes. And they sent for pipes, and they were told that they'd been all bought up by San Francisco and Sacramento, the big cities. So it was meant to be temporary, but they put it in the ground, and you know how temporary things are. They tend to stay. And so some of them rotted very fast. Others took quite a bit longer time. But there was a big problem then with dysentery because a lot of the water pipes ran near the outhouses. And so um, Chapman, Chapman would always plunge in where there was a problem and try to be part of the solution. He was very clever, and he was, he was action-oriented. So he bought the water company. And uh, eventually, the book describes how this happened. It was a very difficult thing because the water company never was wealthy enough to buy all these iron pipes. So they begged the city to help subsidize this. And some people on the council were willing to. Others were hesitant. And the community was split because some people were saying, well, then you'll raise our taxes. You know, So there's always that. So that came up in almost every issue. That was very true, for example, in incorporation. This is the year of, of anniversary of the incorporation of Chico. But that was an issue that divided the community uh, tremendously between the taxers and the no taxers. <laughs> and uh, Chapman, again, then was involved in that. And then when they solved the pipe problem, the pumps were going bad. And so the pumps were important because they were, well, for every reason, but one of the things they did was they were used to um, alert somehow the bell ringers or something if there was a fire. And they couldn't alert for fire if they didn't have the pumps. So um, again, Chapman had to go back and say, "We we need money now to help with the pumps. And there was a large city meeting uh, where this was all hashed out. And there was, ultimately, the decision was made to get the pumps. But in the meantime, everyone had to cut back their lawn watering. They could only water at certain hours, the morning and night. So there's a lot of what they experienced that we've also experienced. It was how I found Chapman, really. Uh, because there's no, there were no family memos or diaries. Or, there's no family living here. That I, I thought Sarah kept a diary. Well, she kept a diary, but there was only one that survived, and it was in the 
box of a house that burned in paradise that was then given to somebody else who then died, who happened to give it to special collections at Chico State, where I happened to find it. Nobody even told me it was there. So there's this one diary, but it's from very late. It's from 1899, quite a bit later. I'd love to have had more. Uh, newspapers are so important. They are the record. And this newspaper in a small town. And that one was called the record. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it was. Record. Definitely. And so. Those were separate newspapers. Yeah. Tr correct. And because it was a small town, they didn't have a lot of journalists, of course. So the editor was often the reporter as well. And it was kind of, you know, it was a quiet town. So they put a lot of the kind of personal information in. When they reported a wedding, they reported what gifts were given by whom, which was kind of a competitive problem, and um, who had been seen on the streets and um, who was sitting on It was very important, for example, when I was trying, Chapman was vice president of the Bank of Butte County, and a local lawyer, Frank Lusk, coveted his seat on the board and knew he was financially vulnerable at that moment. So this was possible for me to follow because they reported every week who the officers were in the bank. And they were coming in and going out in a periodic way. And I knew other things about both of them so I could understand what was happening. So I'm a great fan of newspapers and we just have to be sure somehow they survive. Well, um, you mentioned that often the jobs that were available to men were low pay, and there was one that was paid zero. And this profession, the women, the members of a church, had to come up with their own way of paying the poor minister. Yeah, the Methodist church believed that people had to provide their own for their own pastors. And that meant that men couldn't take off their time at work or uh, wouldn't, but mostly couldn't really. So their wives did all the work for the churches, really. Uh, they did all the maintenance. They did all the fundraising. They did the backup schooling for the children. And, but it was one area where women had power. Um, it, and so they had a lot of differences from time to time among themselves about whether they liked the pastor or not, or what the pro problems the pastor had and how serious they were. And so it was, a, it was a little place where women had a say that men tended to respect. They tended to understand that their, their wives needed this ex outside of their homes to somehow be able to think and express themselves. And, um, and so Sarah became an elder in the Methodist church. She was very devoted to it. And it was, their women's uh, roles were based on service to family and God. And that suited her upbringing and her inclinations. So it, she met, the church meant everything to her. In the end of her life, when she had lost so many children through tragic things that are set out in the book, um, she's uh, summering in paradise and goes to a women's group, and what is your life about? And she said, well, how can I serve? She didn't have any family left, basically, to serve. This, her husband had just died also. And so that does explain her choices all the way through. She understood, and that was. And her husband, by the way, she was like a single parent, although they were always married, and from anything I could tell, basically compatible. But they he had the same birthday. The same birthday, <laughs> the wedding day was the same. Um, but he was gone. When he was in town, he worked 10 hours a day, six and a half days a week. Everybody worked six and a half days a week if they could get enough work. And then he would travel, for example, for the Bidwell store or for his own later store. He would have to go to Oroville to make wholesale orders. That would mean he'd have to stay in Oroville for several days because it, if he wanted to go to Oroville then, 
You had to plan on 10 hours on the road each way. So people went from here to do orders in Oroville. He had to stay at a hotel, and so he got very familiar with town. And so he became a person in Chico that Oroville people knew and really liked a lot, which helped him politically. Well, now, speaking of his work and being away, Sarah being pretty much a single yeah. parent, one job that he had was statewide. And what was that? What did the governor well, appoint? Well, he got to know in the first place George Perkins, who was the John Bidwell of Oroville. Perkins was the wealthiest man there. The banks never closed until his money came in for the day. And so there was this long uh, competition between the two. And uh, Perkins went off, made a big fortune owning uh, freight lines, uh, ships, and uh, so forth. He then ran for governor. And uh, he and Chapman had got back together at a political convention for a new constitution. They became close again. And so he had a very strong, good impression of Chapman. So when he became governor, uh, <clears throat> he appointed Chapman to be head of the, of the State Prison Commission, which had sole authority over San Quentin and Folsom. Well, this was a very powerful position in that day. So most people today didn't know anything about Gus Chapman. But Perkins said, he's a man I've worked with for years. He has integrity, he's you know, smart, and all these kinds of things. So I knew I could trust him and work with him. So this was great for Chapman. This was his dream because the lumber company was something that was the source of his own fortune, but he didn't get along with his partner. And the production end of the company up in the mountains was his partner's part of it. But he had to go up there to meet with the partner, and, and he just hated to go up there. So he th his thinking was that he would get into public life. His young son, Fred, coming out of college, could take over the sales part for now, but basically take over his the production part from the partner. They could dump the partner. And so he plunged into this thing in, Sa in Sacramento. He did a, an amazing job in that. In two years, he redesigned and had online the prison manufacture of hemp bags. All California wheat that was shipped internationally had to be bagged so they wouldn't, the, the loose grain wouldn't sink the ships. So every place that grew wheat, and that's the only crop we had then, had to bag it. That meant hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bags just to Chico. And they were importing these bags from another country. Yes. And so the, the machinery that Chapman brought in from Scotland with uh, supervisors, he had in place in the second year he was in the job as head of the prison commission. And in that year, they made so much money in the prison that they had money back to the state. They were making money for the state, plus supporting the prisons. The goal was to free it from politics. And India lost out because they had been buying their bags there from right. India. And so all those poor people lost all their jobs. So, but in any case, it was a brilliant thing. However, as, we, as I was able to explain, um, it fell into a political disaster because Perkins uh, did not run again. And the successor was uh, a former Confederate general, uh, Stoneman, who wanted all those commission seats for his own party. He was a Democrat. Chapman was a Republican. Um, and the, the, the directors had felt safe because their terms overlapped the new governor. Well, the previous governor had a good relationship with uh, Gus Chapman. Oh, they got along fine. What about this new governor? 
Well, he wanted Chapman's job to give to one of his own uh, followers and all the others chap uh, of the other commissioners as well. He wanted the whole board off. But the board refused to resign because they felt they'd been given these terms, they should be able to keep them. At that time, the state was small in terms of government services, so there weren't a lot of high-power positions for ambitious men. Stoneman needed their backing, so he wanted Chapman and the rest off. Chapman and the other commissioners said no, they weren't going off. So Stoneman said, all right, then I'm going to charge you with um, some kind of crime, and I'm going to get you off that way. And he actually did have hearings. Uh, he was the hearing officer. He made the decision, you know, and so they were all let go. Well, for Chapman, this was a disaster because he had gone into debt to stay on the commission uh, because of all these political problems. They had suspended commissioner's pay. So Chapman was entering a whole period of his life where he was crushed by debt. And for the rest of his life, basically, he was wrestling with keeping up with debt. And he had accumulated large property up in the mountains. And he always paid each debt. And then banks would give him a new loan. There would be a depression, a recession. And so he could never really pay it back. And it, it literally did destroy him. My guest is Michelle Shover. Her new book is Chico's Chapman's, The California Years, 1861 to 1899. Now, one thing that he did that I was impressed by the fact that he wondered, well, how do other prison, prisons solve these problems of prisons? So he made a huge trip. I mean, you were mentioning how long it took just to get from Chico to Oroville. He made a huge trip to see what, how other prisons solved problems. What did he do? Well, he, he knew by this time, he was becoming an expert on prisons. And so he knew the major prisons across the country, and they knew, and he made a point of picking out the ones that did sell, have products that were made. And I think he actually may have been the source of this uh, idea of manufacture here, because uh, in the valley, this was a discussion. Why, why, don't, why doesn't Chico make bags? And so, and Perkins was from Oroville, but had been on the coast for a long time. So I have a feeling that they were talking in that conference. And uh, Chapman would have remembered that at his, uh, in Michigan, in his county, there was Where a- Where he was from. Where he was from. There was a, a prison. And it was known, it was famous in the East for its reformatory purpose. It wasn't there just to lock people up. It was to help them find a way to function in the world productively. And so I'm sure he told Perkins about that. Perkins had to find a you know, purpose, an overriding purpose for his uh, administration. And he was kind of a buddy of the railroads. So he didn't want to attack the railroads, which a lot of people were hoping he would do. So the prison was a big thing and had to work for him because it would carry the whole well, impetus. When he, when he made this trip back east to see how other prisoners, other prisons solved the problem, did he have an expense account? He did. Uh, well, no, actually he was not being reimbursed for anything at this time because everything was suspended because of this whole controversy. And um, so it, it was just a, it, but it was a great moment of his life because he, one thing he found that was so reassuring was that at the other prisons, he found capable citizens like himself in other prison commissions. And they were having similar experiences and they respected his experience. And so he felt that, you know, this is a system that can work and it's working for us, and it's working for them. So we're on the right track, is what he was thinking. So it was crushing to come back, and then to find this wave come over him again. And so I found his will, and he, I believe, was, was thinking of suicide, because the will 
spoke to the, that moment. It wasn't like, you know, in the future, blah, blah, blah. It, it, was, it was sort of speaking to now. And his hand, he had a very sort of firm, sort of sprawling hand. And this was kind of wavy and light ink. And so it was very he revealing. He have a recurring health problem. Yes, he did. And uh, malaria. 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 I don't know whether he, he could have brought it from Michigan because there was a lot of it everywhere in this country where there was water. But malaria was very big here. And he would come down with terrible attacks of it virtually annually where he would just have to go to bed and um, it would be a chills alternating with a sweat. And um, I don't know how he survived it as long as he did. And I think it, I think, I can't recall whether that's what killed him actually in the end in 1899. But um, it was a curious thing because it would go into remission and Charles Stilson, at the Bidwell store in his diary would say, well, Chilson, Stilson, or Chapman was around today. He's doing really well. And it was just like he was normal. And then he would go into a remission again. Um, but it was, Stilson also had it, but he had a lighter uh, touch of it. Mrs. Bidwell had it. Um, so it was so common that people didn't even really talk, talk about it that much. Uh, they just accepted that's what was going on. After a break, I'll continue my conversation with Michelle Schober, who has the biography of Chico's early leaders. This is the Chapmans. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with author Michelle Schover, and we're having our conversation in her home, which is also the former residence of Sarah and Augustus Chapman. Yeah, you just mentioned Annie Bidwell, mm -hmm. and uh, previously we talked about the Methodist Church, and I knew that um, when she came, uh, John Bidwell built this beautiful Presbyterian church for her. Mm -hmm. So I assumed that that was pretty much his choice. But you mentioned that he also still did nice things for the Methodist church. Yeah, he had been a pretty staunch Methodist uh, once they had somebody in town. I don't know whether he drove out to the campsites before there was a local church here in Chico, but he was a regular at church at the Methodist church until he met her, met Mrs. Bidwell. And she explained to him that she thought, found the Methodists um, too passionate. <laughs> they made her nervous, all that speaking out and all this kind of thing. She liked something more contained. So, of course, he obliged her and changed churches. Um, eventually, though, if she, when she would go out of town, too, she would spend time in Washington, D.C., because that's where she was from. Yeah, she had family there, and she had to look after elderly parents, and she had responsibilities there, too. Uh, but when she was out of town, he would often make time to go to the Methodist church, and according to Lois McDonald's book on her, there was a time when he got overwhelmed by the church demanding everything from him financially, and 
he just kind of stopped going there for a while. And I think they got their act together, presumably. Um, but it, that was like Chico in general. He was so wealthy compared to everybody else that the church kind of figured if it's a good thing, he'll pick up the bill. So I don't need to contribute. And he knew that went on, and it really irritated him, understandably. So um, I think that's what happened. Now, uh, because of all the businesses that Gus Chapman was involved in, he owned so many businesses, that you'd think, well, he was well off. He was. But over time, he got more and more financially strapped. But when he died, and I think the newspapers didn't mention this, he did not owe a soul. When he died, he had paid off all his debts. That's true. That was a matter of great honor to him. And it was um, uh, interesting that that was made a point of. But it, he was so honorable. In the 1890s is when everything went flat to the point where he had a little cab, a cabin up at Powelton where his lumber mill was, or what he had left of it. He and his partner had split. Um, so he and his wife could go up there in the summer. But in the winter, they had no home down here. They did for a while when their, their daughter was alive. But she died uh, from childbirth as a very young woman. So they lost them, 26. So she um, had given them a place they could live because they had to give up their big house, which was a big loss to them. They were very proud of that. And um, so they were actually staying in a room in a friend's house. Their, their life was down to, to living in somebody's bedroom. And I think he didn't, I think he stayed away as much as he could. I think he was so humiliated because there's very little about him after 1892. So, well, let's talk about the next generation of Chapmans because. Mm -hmm. I found this so interesting, particularly Chico being a college town. Yeah. I found it fascinating when uh, they were, his children were deciding on college. For example, his older son, Fred, uh, Gus, I'm going to send this kid off to school and he's going to come back and he's going to run my business up in uh, the oh. mountains. And Fred was miserable there. The son was miserable there. But he had a daughter and also, uh, well, let's see, where is this daughter going to go to school? Well, there's this uh, college down in the Bay Area, Merritt College, is a seminary. That might be a good place to send a daughter. But this daughter was a very independent woman. I was so impressed that she goes off to Mount Holyoke. Mount Holyoke. Yes, I thought that was an incredibly important, uh, revealing thing about them, that they were so serious about her, too. Yes, because you have some quotes in your book that, oh, it's not a good idea to send your daughter to college. That could be bad for her health. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. In fact, Mills, uh, wasn't it Mills that said that they'd had no deaths <laughs> recently or something like that? Yeah, that college advertising. Well, yeah. none of our students died. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, when she back, went back to Mount Holyoke, he was one of the first colleges for women. And... Uh, but they couldn't afford staff. So the, the girls who took this huge curriculum of classes also were required to do all the scrubbing, as much cooking as they could get away with. And they were always patrolled like they were in prison. And meanwhile, the men's colleges, yeah. they had staff to come in and clean the rooms Every for them, and, but not at the women's college. No, no. There was a huge difference. But Mary was a very, she was a serious student. In fact, I would like you to tell us what courses she took, because I think modern day students would think, oh my goodness. So um, I have the, the list. It's pretty prodigious. All right. Mary Chapman tackled it all. She also faced down a prodigious academic load. By the time Mary reached Mount Holyoke, the school had intensified its academic rigor by hiring lecturers from other female and male colleges. In her first two semesters, she completed courses in grammar, 
rules of arithmetic, analogy, geography, U.S. history, mental arithmetic, written arithmetic, physical geography, algebra, physics, Bible study, botany, modern history, civil government, trigonometry, chemistry, theology, and mineralogy. And while her schoolmates favored romance languages, Mary signed up for sight reading and prose composition in Latin and Greek. So <laughs> their daughter stuff. was a serious student mm -hmm. and an independent woman. Yes. So she said, goes off to Mount Holyoke. Meanwhile, her older brother, Fred, yeah. comes back to California, and uh, he was a sore loser. He was a party boy, <laughs> and his father had been waiting for him to come back to get training to take over the productivity at the lumber mill. But when he got back, Fred went along with it after a while. But he would literally, it took him six hours to come down from paradise, um, uh, from the mill. But he would come down on Friday and go back up on Mondays so he could party over the weekend down here. Well, now, he was also, uh, he was a corporal. Uh, <laughs> And uh, this guy ahead of him advanced to captain, so Fred didn't like that. And he decided, well, I deserve to get advanced to that rank, but he was not uh, not really qualified for that. So there was an election. He'd be jumping the rank. Yeah, and so uh, and there was an election. Fred Chapman received 24 votes and his competitor, 32, but he was not a good loser. He challenged the election's validity on a technicality. That the man wasn't wearing his uniform. <laughs> yeah, so he says, oh, well, I'm challenging. That's not a valid election. <laughs> so, so Fred um, was kind of a, an object of derision. Yes, it's a sad story, I think. He, um, he, had, he had a lot of charm. And he was very smart, according to his grades, which were published in, in the paper. That's how I know. Uh, but he, he loved music. He was a really good instrumentalist. And I think if he'd come back and his father had used him in sales, it would have been ideal. Because the next boy named Gus Jr., he was a, but he was much younger. He was still a little boy at this time. But he grew up to be a, a, an expert on steam engines. So he would have been the person, if he had just been older, he could have gone up there and, and done that kind of work. But Fred was never suited for it. And it alienated him from the family quite uh, thoroughly, actually. Well, there's a person in your book who was related by marriage, and she was a school teacher, Magnolia Wood. Yes. And there was a scandal in 1884, and we don't have much time. If you can briefly tell us about the Marbles scandal. <laughs> well, east of Chapmantown, somewhere at the southeast of Chapmantown, that is this little six-block area, which was the original Chapmantown that Chapman had anything to do with, um, the adults would see all these kids sort of wandering over in that direction, Kind of interesting, what are they doing? But they're just walking, so nobody paid any attention. And it turned out that there was some kind of competitive marble game that was going on. Uh, they had an old empty barn somewhere over there, and they had laid out wood shelving for tables. And they played these uh, marble games competitively, and at some point... Some kid ended up with all the marbles, practically all the marbles. Well, now usually when kids play marbles, they have maybe a handful of marbles. These were bags. And like 7,000 marbles? <laughs> they had, he, this guy had practically every marble in Chico. And the parents were just uh, stunned by this because then he was going to sell them back or something. And then, then the parents were getting all these requests for money, and they're figuring out then what was going on. So you never knew what kids were up to. Then they would also, 
that the behavior of children was really not what we tend to want to think about in those days. For yeah, one, got a, a class of 60 kids, yeah. that's going to be hard to handle. That's right. And then a lot of children, you know, the, who were poor did not have two parents at home. So they were on their own. And so they would wander around town, and some of them behaved really badly, like stoning Chinese. Or uh, 8th Street was a slough running right down there. And there was a rickety bridge over it. And so they'd jump up and down on the bridge to make it shake. And, and they called it the, the ague dance. That is the malaria dance. They always shook. So, and then, uh, so the schools were just at a loss of how to control this situation. And then if children could get any work at all, raking leaves or carrying this to there, um, the parents were happy to have them leave school because they could bring a little money home, which was in sore need for food. And so teachers then had students coming and going constantly in their classes, sleeping in class because they were exhausted, um, or playing because they had no time for recreation anywhere else. And so the public school teachers had a tremendous difficulty. And Magnolia Wood was one of those teachers. The, she married Fred Chapman. So she married into the family, this she young had, woman who was having such a tough time. A student had tripped her on the, rail, on the stairway at school, and she had really hurt herself badly. But she went back to work. Well, your book has so many uh, fascinating facts in it that we don't get from other sources. It reveals how much research you did on this book. So I want to thank you for all the research you did and remind people the title of your book is Chico's Chapman's The California Years, 1861 to 1899. And we've been having this delightful conversation in your home, which was also the home of the subject of your book. Chapman's, Sarah and Gus Chapman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to extend a special thanks to Michelle Shover and her assistant, Melissa Land, for the tour of the historic former home of Gus and Sarah Chapman. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.